0: 10, crevice of the logs in order that he might have it at hand as soon as daylight would permit him to read the next morning. But during the night a storm came up, and the rain beat in upon the book, wetting it through and through. With heavy heart Lincoln took it back to its owner, who gave it to him on condition that he would work three days to pay for it. Eagerly agreeing to do this, the boy carried his new possession home in triumph. This book had a marked influence over his future, but his time for reading was limited for until he was twenty his father hired him out to do all sorts of work, that which he sometimes earned six dollars a month and sometimes thirty-one cents a day. Money was always sorely needed in that household, the poor farm yielding only a small return for much hard work. For this reason, just before Abraham Lincoln came of age, his family, with all their possessions packed in a cart drawn by four oxen, moved again toward the west. For two weeks they traveled across the country into Illinois and finally made a new home on the banks of the Sangamon River. On reaching the end of the journey in the spring of 1830, Abraham helped to build a log cabin and to clear 10 acres of land for planning. This was the last work he did for his father, as he was now some months over 21 and was quite ready to go out into the world and work for himself. When he left his father's house he had nothing, not even a good suit of clothes. And one of the first things he did was to split rails for enough brown jeans to make him a pair of trousers. As he was six feet four inches tall, three and one half yards were needed. For these he split fourteen hundred rails. At times throughout life he was subject to deep depression, which made his face unspeakably sad. But as a rule he was cheerful and merry. And on account of his good stories, which he told with rare skill, he was in great demand in social gatherings and at the crossroads grocery store. He was a giant in strength and a skillful wrestler. This helped to make him popular. For some months after leaving his father's home Lincoln worked in the neighborhood, most of the time as a farmhand and rail splitter, but he desired something different. From time to time he had watched the boats carrying freight up and down the river and had wondered where the vessels were going. Eager to learn about the life outside his narrow world, he determined to become a boatman as soon as he could. Therefore. He found employment on a flatboat that carried corn, hogs, hay, and other farm produce down to New Orleans, but tiring at length of the long journeys, he became clerk in a village store at New Salem, Illinois. Many stories are told of Lincoln's honesty in his dealings with the people in this village store. It is said that on one occasion a woman, in making change, overpaid him the trifling sum of six cents. When Lincoln found out the mistake he walked three miles and back that night to give the woman her money. In less than a year the closing of this village store left him without employment, and after this he had a varied experience, first in a grocery store of his own, next as postmaster in New Salem, and then as a surveyor. Abraham Lincoln and slavery after many trials at various occupations, he decided at last to become a lawyer, and after being admitted to the bar, he opened an office at Springfield, Illinois. He succeeded well in his chosen profession, and also took a keen interest in the larger affairs of his community and state. In this wider field of action certain qualities of mind and heart greatly aided him. For, in spite of scant learning, he was a good public speaker and skillful debater, because he thought clearly and convinced those who heard him of his honesty and high purpose. Such a man is certain to win his way in the world. In due time he was elected to Congress. Where his interest in various public questions, especially that of slavery, became much quickened. On this question his clear head and warm heart united in forming strong convictions that had great weight with the people. He continued to grow in political favor and, in 1858, received the nomination of the Republican Party for the United States Senate. His opponent was Stephen A. Douglas, known as the Little Giant, on account of his short stature and powerful eloquence as an orator. The debates between the two men, preceding the election, were followed with keen interest all over the country. Lincoln argued with great power against the spread of slavery into the new states, and although he lost the election, he won such favorable notice that two years later a greater honor came to him. In 1860, the Republican National Convention, which met at Chicago, nominated him as its candidate for president, and a few months later he was elected to that office. The agitation over slavery was growing more and more bitter, and when Lincoln was elected some of the southern states threatened to go out of the Union. They claimed that it was their right to decide for themselves whether they should secede. On the other hand, the North declared that no state could secede without the consent of the other states. Before Lincoln was inaugurated seven of the southern states had carried out their threat to secede, calling themselves the Confederate States of America. Of the excitement everywhere was intense. Many people regretted that a man of larger experience than Lincoln had not been chosen to be at the head of the government. They were anxious lest this plain man of the people, this awkward backwoodsman, should not be able to lead the nation in those dark and troubled days. But, little as they trusted him, he was well fitted for the work that lay before him. A Jefferson Davis was chosen president and Alexander H. Stevens vice-president. The seven cotton states hoped that they would be joined by the other eight slave states but only four of these eight seceded. Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri remained loyal to the Union. His inauguration was but a few weeks over when the Civil War began. We cannot here pause for full accounts of all Lincoln's trials and difficulties in this fearful struggle. During those four fateful years, 1861-1865, his burdens were almost overwhelming, but, like Washington, he believed that right makes might and must prevail and this belief sustained him. Although his whole nature revolted against slavery, he had no power to do away with it in the states where it existed, for by his office he was sworn to defend the Constitution. My great purpose, he said, is to save the Union, and not to destroy slavery. But as the war went on he became certain that the slaves, by remaining on the plantations and producing food for the southern soldiers, were aiding the southern cause. He therefore determined to set the slaves free in all the territory where people were fighting to break up the Union, just as far as it was conquered by Union troops. As commander-in-chief of the Union armies, he reasoned, I had a right to do this as a war measure. The famous state paper in which Lincoln declared that such slaves were free was called the Emancipation Proclamation January 1, 1863. This freeing of a part of the slaves not only hastened the end of the war but led, after its close to the final emancipation of all the slaves, we should remember that the man who did most to bring about this result was Abraham Lincoln, whose name has gone down in history as the great emancipator, passing over the events of the war, which we shall consider later in connection with its great generals. Let us look ahead to years. On April 9, 1865, General Lee, as we shall see a little later, surrendered his army to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. By the act, the war was brought to a close, and there was great rejoicing everywhere. But suddenly the universal joy was changed into a universal sorrow, for a shocking thing happened. Five days after Lee's surrender, Lincoln went with his wife and friends to see a play at Ford's Theater, in Washington. In the midst of the play, a southern actor, John Wilkes Booth, who was familiar with the theater, entered the president's box, shot him in the back of the head, jumped to the stage and rushed through the wings to the street. There he mounted a horse in waiting for him and escaped. Soon, however, to be hunted down and killed in a barn where he lay in hiding. The martyr president lingered during the long hours of the sad night, tenderly watched by his family and a few friends, when, on the following morning, he breathed his last. Secretary Stanton said with truth, now he belongs to the ages. The people deeply mourned the loss of him who had wisely and bravely led them through four years of heavy trial and anxiety. We are all richer because of the life of Abraham Lincoln, our countryman, our teacher, our guide, and our friend, and the loss to the south was even greater than to the north, for he was not only just but also kind and sympathetic, and only he could have saved the south from its calamities for years afterward. Paul having followed a few of the leading events in the remarkable career of our martyr president, let us turn our thoughts to the Civil War, through which it was Lincoln's great work to guide us. As a nation, it was a struggle that tested the manhood, quite as much as the resources, of the warring sections, and each side might well be proud of the bravery and skill of its officers and soldiers, certainly each side had among its generals some of the greatest military leaders of all time. One of the ablest generals commanding the Confederate troops was Robert E. Lee. He was born in Virginia, January 19, 1807, his father being the Revolutionary General known as Light Horse Harry. Although the records of his boyhood days are scanty, we know that when little Robert was about four years old the Lees removed from Stratford to Alexandria, in order to educate their children. Here the boy was prepared for West Point Academy, which he entered when he was 18. At this military school he made such a good record as a student that he was graduated second in his class. Two years later he married Miss Justice, who was a great-granddaughter of Mrs. George Washington, and through this marriage he shared with his wife the control of large property, which included plantations and a number of slaves. Immediately after leaving West Point, he entered the army as an engineer, and during the Mexican War distinguished himself for his skill and bravery. A few years later, 1852, He was appointed superintendent of West Point Academy, where he remained three years. At the outbreak of the Civil War he was so highly esteemed as an officer in the United States Army, that he would have been appointed commander of the Union armies if he had been willing to accept the position. He loved the Union, and was opposed to secession. But when Virginia, his native state, seceded he felt that it was his duty to go with her. His struggle in making the decision was a painful one. As was made plain in a letter he wrote to a sister, then living in Baltimore, with all my devotion to the Union, he said, and the feeling of loyalty and duty of an American citizen, I had not been able to make up my mind to raise my hand against my relatives, my children, my home. I know you will blame me, but you must think as kindly of me as you can, and believe that I had endeavored to do what I thought right. Soon after he decided that he must go with Virginia in the great struggle which was to follow. He accepted the command of the Virginia State Forces, and within a year from that time became military advisor of Jefferson Davis, who was president of the Confederacy. In 1862, the second year of the war, Lee took command of the leading Confederate army in Virginia. General McClellan, who commanded a large Union army, had been trying to capture Richmond, the capital of the Confederate states, after fighting a series of battles. He approached so close to Richmond that his soldiers could see the spires of the churches, but as the city was strongly fortified he retreated to the James River. During this retreat, which lasted a week, were fought what were known as the Seven Days Battles. Having thus saved Richmond from capture, Lee marched north into Maryland, expecting the people to arise and join his forces, but they were loyal to the Union and refused. The terrible Battle of Antietam or Sharpsburg was fought September, 1862 and Lee was obliged to a retreat to Virginia. A few months later December, 1862, Lee repulsed an attack of the Union Army at Fredericksburg with fearful slaughter, and in the following May he won a victory at Chancellorsville. Stonewall Jackson in all these battles Lee's most effective helper was General Thomas J. Jackson. Stonewall Jackson, as he was called, Jackson won his nickname at the Battle of Bull Run, one of the Confederate generals, who was trying to harden his retreating men cried out to them, See, there is Jackson, standing like a stone wall, rally round the Virginians. From that hour of heroism he was known as Stonewall Jackson, and for his bravery in this battle he was made a major general. He was such a stubborn fighter, and so furious in his enthusiasm that his soldiers marched to death when he bade them. What was even harder, they marched at the double quick through Virginia mud, without shoes, without food, without sleep. They cheerfully did his bidding because they loved him. The sight of his old uniform and scrawny sorrel horse always stirred the hearts of his followers. Jackson was a deeply religious man. In spirit he was so much of a Puritan that it caused him great regret to march or to fight on a Sunday. He was devoted to a Lee and placed the greatest confidence in him. He is the only man I would follow blindfold, he said. And on his deathbed he exclaimed, better that ten Jacksons should fall than one Lee stonewall jackson was shot at the battle of chancellorsville but not by the enemy he and his escort had ridden out beyond his line of battle when being mistaken for the enemy they were fired upon by some of their own soldiers and jackson was mortally wounded his death was a great loss to the southern army jb e. stewart another of general lee's very able helpers was general stewart he wrote his name jb e. stewart so his admirers called him jeb he was absolutely fearless He would attack anything anywhere, and he inspired his men with the same zeal. He was noted for falling into dangerous situations and then cleverly getting himself out. His men were used to this. They trusted him completely and without question. They loved him, too, for his good comradeship, for although he preserved the strictest discipline, he frolicked with his officers like a boy, playing at snowballs, or marbles, or whatever they chose, and enjoying it all heartily. He was so fond of gay, martial music that he kept his banjo player, Sweeney, always with him, and worked in his tent to the cheerful accompaniment of his favorite songs. Now and then leaning back to a laugh and join in the choruses, his gay spirit found expression also in the clothes he wore. Listen to this description of him, his fighting jacket shone with dazzling buttons and was covered with gold braid, his hat was looped up with a golden star and decorated with a black ostrich plume his fine buff gauntlets reached to the elbow, around his waist was tied a splendid, yellow sash, and his spurs were pure gold, These spurs, of which he was immensely proud, were a gift from Baltimore women, his battle flag was a gorgeous red one, which he insisted upon keeping with him, although it often drew the enemy's fire, Stuart was very proud of his men and their pluck, he knew by name every man in the first brigade, It was his strong desire that he might meet his death while leading a cavalry charge, and he had his wish, for he was struck down near Richmond. In 1864, while he was leading an attack against Sheridan, he died when he was only 31, deeply mourned by all his men, Gettysburg but to return to General Lee. After winning the two important battles of Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, he decided that he would again invade the North 1863. He believed that a great victory north of the Potomac River might lead to the capture of Philadelphia and Washington and thus end the war. Having marched boldly into Pennsylvania, he met the Union Army, under General Meade, at the little town of Gettysburg, not far from the southern border of the state. therefore three days the most terrible battle of the war, and in its results, one of the greatest battles of all history, took place, after three days of fighting, in which the loss on both sides was fearful. Lee was defeated and forced to a retreat to Virginia. The defeat of Lee's army at Gettysburg was a crushing blow to the hopes of the South. Lee himself felt this to be true, and, grieving over the heavy loss of his men in the famous Pickett's Charge, he said to one of his generals, All this has been my fault. It is I that have lost this fight, and you must help me out of it the best you can. But even in the face of this defeat his officers and soldiers still trusted their commander, They said, Uncle Robert will get us into Washington yet, but the surrender of another division of the army, fighting far away on the Mississippi River, added defeat to defeat. For the day following the Battle of Gettysburg, General Grant captured Vicksburg, the greatest Confederate stronghold on the Mississippi River. The South could no longer hope for victory. Ulysses S. Grant before going on with the story of the war. Let us pause for a little in order to catch a glimpse of Ulysses S. Grant the remarkable man who was the greatest general that the North produced throughout the war. He was born in a humble dwelling at Point Pleasant, Ohio, in April, 1822. The year following his birth the family removed to Georgetown, Ohio, where they lived many years. The father of Ulysses was a farmer and manufacturer of leather. The boy did not like the leather business, but he did like work on the farm. When only seven years old, He hauled all the wood which was needed in the home and at the leather factory from the forest, a mile from the village, from the age of 11 to 17. According to his own story as told in his personal memoirs, he plowed the soil, cultivated the growing corn and potatoes, sawed firewood, and did any other work a farmer boy might be expected to do. He had his good times also, fishing, swimming in the creek not far from his home, driving about the country, and skating with other boys he liked horses, and early became a skillful rider, a story is told of him which indicates not only that he was a good horseman, but that he had bulldog grit as well, one day when he was at a circus, the manager offered a silver dollar to anyone who could ride a certain mule around the ring, several persons, one after the other, mounted the animal, only to be thrown over its head, young Ulysses was among those who offered to a ride, but, like the others, he failed, then, Pulling off his coat, he got on the animal again, putting his legs firmly around the mule's body and seizing it by the tail. Ulysses rode in triumph around the ring amid the cheers of the crowd. Although he cared little for study, his father wished to give him all the advantages of a good education and secured for him an appointment to a West Point. After graduating, he wished to leave the army and become an instructor in mathematics at his alma mater. But, as the Mexican War broke out about that time, He entered active service. Soon he gave striking evidence of that fearless bravery for which he was later to become noted on the battlefields of the Civil War. At the close of the Mexican War, Grant resigned from the Army and engaged in farming and business until the outbreak of the Civil War. With the news that the Southern troops had fired on the flag at Fort Sumter, Grant's patriotism was aroused. Without delay he rejoined the Army and at once took an active part in getting ready for the war. First as Colonel and then as Brigadier General, he led his troops, and his powers as a leader quickly developed. The first of his achievements was the capture of Forts Henry and Nelson, in Tennessee, the center of a strong Confederate line of defense. At Fort Nelson he received the surrender of nearly 15,000 prisoners, and by his great victory compelled the Confederates to abandon two of their important strongholds, Columbus and Nashville. After the loss of Fort Nelson the Confederates fell back to a second line of defense and took position at Corinth. General Grant's army was at Pittsburgh Landing. Eighteen miles away, not far off was the village of Shiloh, from which the battle is now generally named. Here, early on Sunday morning April 6, 1862, Grant was attacked by Johnston, and his men were driven back a mile and a half toward the river. It was a fearful battle, lasting until nearly dark. Not until after midnight was Grant able to arrest, and then, sitting in the rain, with his back against the foot of a tree, he slept a few hours before the renewal of battle on Monday morning, with reinforcements he was able on the second day to drive the enemy off the field and win a signal victory. By this battle Grant broke the Confederates' second line of defense, although they fought bravely and well to prevent the Union troops from getting control of the Mississippi River. By the close of 1860 to the south had lost every stronghold on the river except Port Hudson and Vicksburg. Vicksburg was so strongly defended that the Confederates believed that it could not be taken. A resolute effort to capture it was made by General Grant in 1863. After a brilliant campaign of strategy, by which he got around the defenses, he laid siege to the city itself. For seven weeks the Confederate army held out. During that time the people of Vicksburg sought refuge from the enemy's shells in caves and cellars, their only food at times consisting of rats and mule flesh. But on July 4, 1863, the day after General Lee's defeat at Gettysburg, Vicksburg surrendered to General Grant. Four days later Port Hudson, some distance below, was captured, and thus the last stronghold of the Mississippi came under control of the North. General Grant had become the hero of the Northern Army his success was in no small measure due to his dogged perseverance, while his army was laying siege to Vicksburg, a confederate woman, at whose door he stopped to ask for a drink of water, inquired whether he expected ever to capture Vicksburg, certainly, he replied, but when, was the next question, quickly came the answer, I cannot tell exactly when I shall take the town, but I mean to stay here till I do, if it takes me thirty years, General Grant having by his capture of Vicksburg won the confidence of the people. President Lincoln, in 1864, put him in command of all the Union armies of the East and the West. In presenting the new commission, Lincoln addressed him in these words, As the country here entrusts you, so, under God, it will sustain you. William Tecumseh Sherman In the spring of that year the Confederates had two large armies in the field, one of them, under General Lee, was defending Richmond, the other, Under General Joseph E. Johnston was in Tennessee, defending the Confederate cause in that region. General Grant's plan was to send General Sherman, in whom he had great confidence, against General Johnston, with orders to capture Atlanta, which was now the workshop and storehouse of the Confederacy. Grant himself was to march against Lee and capture Richmond. The two great watchwords were, On to Atlanta, and On to Richmond. Early in May both Grant and Sherman began their campaigns. Starting from Chattanooga, in Tennessee, Sherman began to crowd Johnston toward Atlanta. In order to keep his line of supplies open from Nashville Sherman kept his army close to the railroad, and to hinder him as much as possible. The Confederates sent back bodies of troops to the rear of the Union Army to tear up the railroads, but so quickly were they rebuilt by Sherman's men that the Confederates used to say, Sherman must carry a railroad on his back. His advance was slow but steady and on September 2nd he captured Atlanta. A little later Sherman started on his famous march, from Atlanta to the sea, with the purpose of weakening the Confederate armies by destroying their supplies and their railroads in southern Georgia. His army marched in four columns, covering a belt of territory 60 miles wide. Four days before Christmas he captured Savannah and sent to President Lincoln the famous telegram, I beg to present you, as a Christmas gift. The city of Savannah with 150 guns and plenty of ammunition, also about 25,000 bales of cotton. Sherman's march to the sea was a wonderful achievement. Let us make the acquaintance of this remarkable man. He was at this time 44, standing 6 feet high, with muscles of iron and a military bearing. He gave the impression of having great physical endurance, and no matter whether he was exposed to drenching rain, bitter cold, or burning heat, he never gave signs of fatigue. Many nights he slept only three or four hours, but he was able to fall asleep easily almost anywhere he happened to be, whether lying upon the wet ground or on a hard floor, or even amid the din and roar of muskets and cannon, in battle he could not sit calmly smoking and looking on, like General Grant, he was too much excited to sit still, and his face reflected his thoughts, yet his mind was clear and his decisions were rapid, his soldiers admired him and gave him their unbounded confidence. One of his staff said of him while they were on the march to the sea, the army has such an abiding faith in its leader that it will go wherever he leads, that Savannah the soldiers would proudly remark as their general rode by, there goes the old man, all right. During the trying experience of this famous march, Sherman's face grew anxious and careworn, but behind the careworn face there were kind and tender feelings, especially for the young. Little children would show their trust in him by clasping him about his knees or by nestling in his arms. While he was in Savannah, large groups of children made a playground of the General's headquarters and private room, the doors of which were never closed to them. While General Sherman, in Georgia, was pushing his army onto Atlanta and onto the sea, Grant was trying to defeat Lee and capture Richmond. With these aims in view, Grant crossed the Raping River and entered the wilderness in direct line for Richmond. Here fighting was stern business. The woods were so gloomy and the underbrush was so thick that the men could not see one another twenty feet away. Lee's army furiously contested every foot of the advance. In the terrible battles that followed Grant lost heavily. But he pressed doggedly on, writing to President Lincoln his stubborn resolve, I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. It did take all summer and longer. Moreover, Grant found that he could not possibly capture Richmond from the north so he crossed the James River and attacked the city from the south, yet when autumn ended Lee was still holding out, and Grant's army settled down for the winter, Philip H. Sheridan at this time one of Grant's most skillful generals and ablest helpers was Philip H. Sheridan, who was a brilliant cavalry leader, as a boy he had a strong liking for books, and especially those which told of war and the lives of daring men, when he read of their brave deeds perhaps he dreamed of the days when he might be a great soldier, At the time when he came into most prominent notice in the summer and autumn of 1864 he was only 33 years old, he was short, and as he weighed but 115 pounds, he was not at all impressive in appearance, except in the heat of battle, when his personality was commanding and inspiring, no matter how trying the situation might be, he never lost self-control and was always kind and friendly toward those working with him but perhaps his finest quality was a stern devotion to duty. He said, In effect, in all the various positions I have held, my sole aim has ever been to be the best officer I could and let the future take care of itself. Such a man, whether civilian or soldier, is a true patriot. It was early in August, 1864, that General Grant placed Sheridan in command of the Union Army in the Shenandoah Valley, with orders to drive the enemy out and destroy their food supplies. Sheridan entered the valley from the north, destroyed large quantities of supplies, and after some fighting went into camp on the north side of Cedar Creek. In October, a few days later he was called to Washington. Returning on the 18th, he stayed overnight at Winchester, about 14 miles from Cedar Creek. About 6 o'clock the next morning, a picket on duty reported to him before he was up that cannon were being fired in the direction of Cedar Creek. At first Sheridan paid little attention. Then he began to be disturbed. He writes, I tried to go to sleep again, but grew so restless that I could not and soon got up and dressed myself, eating a hurried breakfast. He mounted his splendid cold black steed, Renzi, and started for the battlefield of Cedar Creek, where his army was. This was the ride that afterward became famous as Sheridan's Ride. As he rode forward he could hear the booming of cannon. Then he saw a part of his army in full retreat and fugitives told him that a battle had been fought against General Early's Confederates and everything lost. With two aides and twenty men the gallant Sheridan dashed forward to the front as fast as his foaming speed could carry him. On meeting a retreating officer who said, the army is whipped. Sheridan replied, you are, but the army isn't. As he pushed ahead he said to his soldiers, if I had been with you this morning this disaster would not have happened, we must face the other way. We must go back and recover our camp. As soon as his troops caught sight of, Little Phil, as they liked to call him, they threw their hats into the air and, with enthusiastic cheers, shouldered their muskets and faced about. Sheridan brought order out of confusion and in the battle that followed drove Early's army from the field in utter rout. Great was the rejoicing in the north over this victory, and Sheridan himself was raised to the rank of Major General. This victory was largely due to Sheridan's magnetic influence over his men. The following incident illustrates this remarkable power of Little Phil at the Battle of Five Forks, which took place near Richmond the next spring 1865, a wounded soldier in the line of battle near Sheridan's tomb.